we just like celebrating people around here. You know, like we're, gonna, we're just going to continue celebrating people. Right? It's fun to celebrate people. We will, what, this, is, this is the truth, guys. We, we're going to replicate what we celebrate, right? That's what's going to happen. So let's celebrate those good things that the Lord's doing in our midst. A few weeks ago, my family went hiking out west. We explored the Grand Canyon, Bryce National Park, Zion National Park. And we were able to see some of the most beautiful creation, I think, on this planet. There were times when we would pause, yes, to take pictures. And the boys grumbled a lot over this because Christy, you know, every, every few steps would be like, family picture time. And the boys, including myself, would go, oh. But what it caused us to do was to slow down and take it in, right? Take it in. Actually stop and just look out and see God's incredible creation. I, find, I found myself, you know, everybody talks about the Grand Canyon. You know, you read about it, you hear about it, and it's like it takes your breath away when you see it. I found myself mesmerized by the grandeur of the Grand Canyon, the majesty of Zion's cliffs as we were driving in. There are cliffs on either side of the road that you're, you're winding down through. And it's just incredible. It takes your breath away. And the one that was most surprising was Bryce. The intricacies of the, of the rock formations were just incredible. Absolutely gorgeous. You know, as I look back, yeah, I, I, love, to, I love to think on it. I love looking at those pictures. But as, as I was pondering this morning, I was like, did it, did it change my life? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't, not necessarily. It didn't necessarily change my life that I got to see these things. But what it has done is it's given me a greater appreciation for the beauty of God's creation. Man, our God is incredible. And yes, we, we, see, his, we see his handiwork in creation from the sky above to the mountains below, we see his handiwork. Today, today in our passage, we're continuing in the book of Exodus. I was, I was talking to our, our worship team this morning, and it's crazy. We only have like four more weeks in Exodus because we're going to wrap it up at the end of November. Uh, it means we got a lot of text to cover. It's like 15 chapters in four weeks. We'll see what happens. But today in our passage, what we're going to see, we're going to see the Israelites behold God. We're going to see them not only see, but fix their gaze upon something incredible. They're going to behold God, who is more grander than the Grand Canyon, who's more majestic than Zion, who's more intricate than Bryce. This is the God who created those things. This is the God who simply spoke and they came into being. So as we work through these chapters, we're going to see what they see and hear. We're going we're to see how God's desire for them is that through beholding him, their lives will be radically changed. Unfortunately, we know that the Israelites failed miserably after they beheld God. They saw him, and then they failed. They vow obedience in our passage today. 
And they continue in this cycle of idolatry and sin. So the question I want to ask as we, as we walk away from this text today, yes, we want to behold God, but we do not want to be like the Israelites. So can our lives be different? After beholding God, can our lives be different? The big idea, idea today, the, the main idea that I want us to take away is this. Beholding God, right, beholding, not only seeing but fixing our gaze upon him. Beholding God leads to an abundant, joy-filled, obedient life. Beholding God leads to an abundant, joy-filled, obedient life. We're going to read the whole passage to begin with from 2320 to 2418, and then I want to pray for us. So let's begin in verse 20. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to grab one in front of you right there in the pew. Exodus 23, verse 20. This is what the text says. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I've prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you, co- if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and he will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw, the, throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot, at the foot of, of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet as it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. 
and he did not lay his hands on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment with which, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up, the mount, went up on the mountain and the cloud, over, the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Let's pray. Father, we, we give you praise for your word. We thank you for it. We thank you that it teaches us. Father, we, we pray now and we confess that we need your spirit in order to understand your word. So, Father, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. God, give us understanding. Help us to behold you. For we know that in beholding you and in, in setting our gaze upon you and your glory, our lives will be changed. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I, I truly believe as we behold God, our lives will be, tra will be radically transformed. As you, as you think about beholding God in the scriptures, we'll see in a few weeks Moses beholds God. He says, God, show me your glory. He says, I can't or you'll die. He says, but I will allow my goodness to pass before you. So he hides Moses in the rock and he allows Moses to see the backside of God. And, and later on, we, we know like Moses' face shone with glory because he was in the presence of God. Uh, another time, Isaiah, he sees the Lord's temple filled with his glory. And, and he hears, who will go for me? His life is transformed. Here am I. Send me. Right? Our lives are transformed when we see God. When we fix our eyes on God, our lives will be transformed. In this passage, what I want us to do today, I want us to behold God in two specific ways. We see this fleshed out here in this passage. And then as we close out our time today, I want us to, to see, well, what's a, what's a right response to beholding God? How do we now respond in light of who God has revealed himself to be? First, in, in chapter 23, 20 to 33, what we see, what we behold is God's faithfulness to his promises. God's faithfulness to his promises. That's what we see. That's what we, that's what we behold. We gaze upon this. God here is, is recounting his covenant promises with Israel. He's saying, I'm going to do what I said I would do. Great is thy faithfulness. We just sang about this. Great is thy faithfulness. So first, yes, we see his faithfulness to his promises. He says, behold, I'm going to send an angel before you. 
So he sends an angel. In verse 20, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you. You see, God, is, as, as, you, as you notice in, in 20 to 23, you, you notice that God is, is interchanging here. He's saying, as the angel speaks to you, obey what I've said. Right? God is present through this angel. God has been present from Genesis 2. The presence of God flows throughout all of Scripture. It's one of those threads that we can see from Genesis to Revelation. Right? In Genesis 2, he walks in the garden with Adam and Eve. God is there with his people because they're not tarnished by sin. Yet as sin comes in, yes, they're, they're cast out of the presence of God, but God still is there. He speaks to Abraham in Genesis 12. He speaks to Isaac. He speaks to Jacob. He guides and guards Joseph as he is making his way to Egypt. God shows up again in Exodus at the burning bush. God is now leading the people through a cloud and through fire. God will, God will show up over and over because he is a present God. He's not a God who creates and then forgets. He's a God who is actively involved in the lives of his people. He provides water for, yes, the just and the unjust. All is his, and he is present. We see him acknowledged as close in the Psalms. But ultimately, ultimately, God is present in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. That's who he is. Jesus came as God in the flesh. As Jesus departs in Matthew 28, he gives us a command, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Yes, baptize, yes, teach. And then he says, I'll be with you to the ends of the age. I'll be with you. Presence. Jesus is present. Jesus says, it's better for me to go away because when I go away, what's he going to do? He's going to pour out his spirit upon his people. The Spirit is poured out in Acts 2. Promised in Acts 1, poured out in Acts 2. And the Spirit guides the early church to make disciples from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Spirit causes the people, causes Peter immediately to preach about Jesus. 3,000 are saved. Right? The Spirit is present. The Spirit is present today. In believers, in those who follow Christ, Jesus, or the Spirit, is present with us. One day, when Christ returns, we're still talking about presence. Genesis 2, all the way to the end of Revelation. One day, when Christ re returns, we will be present with God for eternity. In the new heavens and the new earth, God will be present with his people. God will be our God, and we will be his people. There's great hope here, church. God is present. God is present. God does not leave the Israelites. He remains faithful by sending his angel. Listen to some of the words that the angel, the angel does. It says he guards. He guides. Right? He, he brings you to the place that I've prepared in verse 20. He instructs, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. He has the ability to forgive. He, right there, at the end of verse 21, 
Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. It means, I think it implies that he has the ability to forgive. He's not going to pardon if you rebel. And then this last part, he says, he bears God's name. Right? For my name is in him. My name is in him. There are a variety of interpretations of who this angel is. I know in our, in our small group on last Sunday, who is this angel? Well, here's a few of the answers that people have given. Maybe, maybe he's the cloud that's been with them from the beginning. Maybe it's a metaphor for the Lord himself. Others have said because this word, angel, means messenger, Maybe it's Moses or Joshua leading the people, right? They're going before, they're guarding, they're guiding, right? Or it may be a literal angel like Michael or Gabriel. Others believe that this is a pre-incarnate Christ. This is the second, the second person of the Trinity showing up in the Old Testament, showing up in Exodus. The language used around this angel seems to have characteristics of God. There seems to be some deity ascribed to this angel. However you land here, I think you have to acknowledge that the angel clearly points to one who was to come. He points to a picture of Jesus for us. You see, when Jesus came, and now as Jesus intercedes on behalf of his people, he guards he guides. He instructs with God's authority. Right? When he goes and teaches in the Gospels, they're blown away by his authority. Blown away. He has the ability of, to, to forgive sin. Your, your sins are forgiven. So he tells the paralytic that's lowered down by his friends. Who can forgive sin but God alone? You're a blasphemer. Jesus says, well, all right. Why, why don't I just tell him to rise up and walk? Jesus can forgive sin. And Jesus bears the name of God. He's actually been given the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Right? That's, that's who Jesus is. This angel, this angel is pointing to something greater. Yes, it may be the pre-incarnate Christ. I, I think it's, it's up for debate. But this angel will be with the people as they go to the promised land. God provides an angel. He promises blessing. He promises blessing. He promises blessing in really three ways in 23 to 31. The land, their daily needs, and health. The land. He says, y'all saw this. I had to read those words. Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites. He says, I'm going to bring you in and I'll blot them out. I'm going to give you this land. This is going back to the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15. He's going to give them land. He's taking them to this land that will overflow with milk and honey. Verse 23 says it. Verses 27 to 31. Again, I'll send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I'll make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets. So not only is God going to send his terror, which we know this terror followed them into the promised land. Because in, in Joshua, we see Rahab recounting this. The people are 
afraid. They're in terror because they've heard of what God has done. His terror will come and he wipes out. He wipes out Jericho. I will send hornets. This could be real hornets. This could be also just another uh, parallel with terror. They'll drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate. You see God's provision here. But then he says, I will set your border, in verse 31, from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. God is going to provide land. He's already said, I'm going to provide land. Now he says how he's going to do it. He also says in in this verse, he says, I'm going to provide for your daily need. He says, as you go in, do not serve their gods. Verse 25, you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. He says, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to provide for you. As they enter the land, he'll provide abundance to them. He's even, you, you heard this, he's even going to drive out the people little by little. Right? That's what he said. I'm going to drive them out little by little. Why? So the land doesn't become desolate. So that the wild animals don't overtake you. God is providing for their daily needs. Another way God is providing, he says, I'm going to provide health to you. I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. He says he's going to take away sickness, barrenness, miscarriage. He's going to give them long days. How do we reconcile this? You may be thinking, uh, I don't know, that's not, that's not my experience. <laughs> How do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile that promise with our current experience? Contrary to what we hear on, from television preachers, we're not promised health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. That's not what God is talking about. God has a greater view, a longer view for us. And we know that one day we will be abundantly provided for in the new heavens and new earth. Yes, there is abundant life now. There's great joy in Jesus now. But we know sickness comes. Miscarriages come. Barrenness comes. Early death comes. But there is a new land that will be provided for the covenant people of God, the the sons and daughters of God one day in the new heavens and new earth where revelation, the end of revelation is so clear. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more pain. There will be no more mourning, no more grief, no more sin. He promises this church. Behold your God. God is so faithful to his promises. Yet, as we see, he expects his people to live lives of obedience. He sends an angel to guard them. He promises blessing. He expects obedience. He expects obedience. He gives us some warnings. Verse 21, hey, don't rebel. Don't rebel against the angel. God knows the people could rebel and will rebel. He warns them in verse 21, don't rebel. He he warns them in verse 24 of false worship. When you go into the land and you're among the nations, they're going to be worshiping other gods. Do not serve. Do not bow down to their God. 
do not bow down to their gods. Instead of bowing down to their gods, utterly destroy their altars and their pillars of sacrifice. Get it out from among you. That's what he's telling them. He knows. He knows what they're going to be tempted against. He knows what's going to come. And he warns them, be careful of rebellion. Be careful of false worship. He expects obedience. In 25 and verses 32 to 33, we see he instructs them, don't compromise. Don't compromise. In verse, in verse 25, he exhorts them, serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread. In, in 24, he says, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them. They're going to be tempted to serve the other gods. They're going to be tempted to serve Baal as they see the Canaanites worshiping this fertility god. As they see the Canaanites' fields overflowing with milk and honey. They're going to be tempted. He says, don't serve their gods. Serve me alone. He says again at the end of this chapter, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they, be, they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Don't make covenants. Don't make alliances. Get them away from you. We understand this. Living in close proximity will cause you to sin. Question, where do you compromise? Where do you compromise with our culture? Where do you compromise with sin? Is it laziness? Is it apathy? Worldliness? Sexual immorality? Is it, is it drunkenness? Is it crude joking at work? Or being in the presence of that? There's a call here. We see it resound in the New Testament. We are to have zero tolerance for sin in our lives. Right? Yes, we're to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. Yes, we have to engage with lostness, with sinners, because we long for them to behold God. But we don't look like them. We don't talk like them. We live holy lives because God has called us to live holy lives. God expects obedience. The, the, the amazing thing is, is he empowers it. He empowers it, and we'll see that in this, this next chapter. Yes, we behold God's faithfulness to his promises. But here in chapter 24, we behold God's pursuit of his covenant people. Oh, God is faithful. But here in 24, behold his pursuit of his people. He goes after them. He goes after them. This, this word covenant comes up. I, I just wanted to give you a quick definition. It's a sacred relationship Sacred relationship established by God in which he belongs to his people and his people belong to him. Man, isn't that incredible? A sacred relationship established by God in which he belongs to his people and his people belong to him. I found this interesting. Several commentators pointed this out in Exodus 24. Listen to this real quick. In Exodus 24, we, we see a worship service. It's the first one fully described in the Bible. It contains nearly all the basic elements of a public service. 
and thus it sets the pattern for biblical worship. There was a call to worship, the reading of God's word, a confession of faith, and the sharing of a sacramental meal. This was all done under the undersight or the oversight of Israel, Israel's elders and by the servant appointed to lead public worship. It was all done in the presence of a holy and glorious God. This is what worship is, meeting with God. And this is why God saved the Israelites, so they could worship him. Exodus 24 is a fulfillment of that promise. In order to confirm the covenant, God's people gathered for a solemn assembly. They met at the mountain to worship God and behold his glory. So what do we see in, in Exodus 24? First, he calls them. In verses 1 and 2, it says that the that, that Lord is speaking to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and worship from afar. But Moses alone shall come up the mountain. So he calls them. He says, come up to me. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, the 70 elders. We, we know later that Nadab and Abihu are actually going to, they're going to offer. They're going to offer fire that God didn't tell them to offer. And they're, they're going to be killed on the spot. Moses here is the only one who's allowed to come near to the presence of God. And we'll see that later in chapter 24. So yes, he calls them. And then he gives them his word. Three through four in verse seven, listen to what it says. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But Moses wrote down, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Again, in verse seven, it says, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. So we see this, the word is given to the people. And God provides for them. He provides for them through offering, through burnt offering and fellowship offering or peace offering. Moses builds an altar in 12 pillars. This is representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he offers a burnt offering, which is an atonement for sin. Right? This burnt offering, God was to look at it, and it was to provide an atonement for sin, a way to wash away the sin. This also, there was a peace offering. This is also called a fellowship offering. It's celebrating that closeness, that fellowship with God. God is providing for them in the blood of bulls and goats, of oxen. And then Moses does something really cool. He takes the blood, he puts half of it in a jar, and then he takes the other half and he sprinkles it on the altar. This blood was sprinkled on the altar. It was Godward. It was, it was looking for approval and reminding that God is gracious to forgive and that he has accepted this sacrifice. And then the other half of the blood that he put into the, the bowl, he goes and he sprinkles it on the people. This is a covering of mercy. They're covered by the blood. They're covered by the blood here. Where now they can see God. In verses, or in, in verses 6 and 8 in chapter 24, I thought this was, this was just insightful. They were committed to obedience. We saw two times, all the words that you've spoken, we will do. All the words that you have spoken, we will do. Twice, they say, we will obey. We will obey. They were committed to obedience. That was their prime concern. But God knows that the best intentions fall constantly short and provided the blood of sacrifice to be at the ready to cater for each and every lapse from his revealed way. God provided the blood because he knew that they would fail. 
God provided a way for them to come into his presence. It was through this sacrifice. The problem with this sacrifice is that it wasn't sufficient. It wasn't sufficient. In Hebrews 9, the writer to the Hebrews actually takes chapter 24 and preaches on it. I could have just read Hebrews 9 today and it had been a lot shorter. Maybe next time we preach through Exodus, we'll do that. But what he does here in Hebrews 9, he's picking up Exodus 24, and what he wants us to see is there's something far greater than the, than the blood of bulls and goats, the blood of oxen. Hebrews 9, verse 13, listen to what it says. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see there, purification, salvation in Christ's blood leads to serving the living God. That's what verse, that's what verse 14 says. Verse 19, we're going to skip down. Verse 19, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, we've just seen this, right? He read from the book of the covenant. That's what we're talking about. He read from the book of the covenant in chapter 24. He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Later on, we're going to see what happens in the rest of Exodus. He's, he's talking about it right here. And in the same way, in verse 21, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. No forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Problem is, the Israelites had to continue doing it. Over and over and over and over. Hebrews 10 will go on to say that Jesus Christ, his sacrifice was a once and for all sacrifice. His sacrifice was a once and for all sacrifice. Blood has been shed for us. Not of animals. Not of animals, but of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Your sins can be forgiven today if you will turn your eyes upon Jesus. If you will behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. The call. Christ suffered and died, his blood, his, his blood was shed on the cross. The call is to repent and believe, and you'll find life. Turn from your sins, trust in Christ, and he provides abundant life. And then you can have fellowship with God. You can have fellowship with God. After the sacrifice, God fellowships with his people. Verse, verse 11 talks about this says that they, they go up, they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And listen to verse 11. This is incredible. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Why would he include that? They saw God. In chapter 33, it's going to say, Moses is going to be told, you cannot see me and live. I think that's why he includes it here. They're seeing God. And then it goes on in verse 11. He says, he didn't lay his hands on them. They beheld God and ate and drank. He fellowships with 
the Israelites. They see God. What are they actually seeing? Because we have to reconcile this, right? They see, they behold. But in chapter 33, it's going to say, you cannot see God and live. What are they seeing? I think it's safe to say that at this point, they did not see the full glory of God because they would not have lived. There's no way they could have lived. I think they're seeing some sort of shape that he allowed them to see vaguely. And this is the interesting part. They're seeing his feet on a pavement of sapphire. Super clear. It's like heavenly clear. I imagine it's like a beautiful blue day, right? You go outside and it's like, wow, that's clear. We get that. But I think what he's allowing them to see is kind of this vantage point of looking up, right? And they're seeing, they're seeing just the, the bottom, I don't know, like one millionth of who God truly is. They're seeing his feet. Maybe it's, maybe it's similar to an iceberg, right, where you just see the, the top of it, but there's so much more to see. They're seeing vaguely. They're seeing dimly. They're seeing dimly. But they saw God. Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Amos all have encounters with God as well. Moses will see God's goodness in a few chapters. The end of verse 11 says they beheld God and then they had a meal with him. They ate and drank with him. They fellowshiped with God. They were in communion with God. A meal during this time, a meal today, hopefully, it symbolizes intimacy and friendship. God was present at this meal. Friend, intimate with the people. As, as chapter 24 closes, we see God meets with Moses. And again, Moses is portrayed as this mediator between God and man. He is the only one allowed to go up. He goes up alone. Joshua is mentioned. He accompanies him to an extent. And then uh, six days pass on the seventh day. He says, hey, come and, come and meet with me. Moses goes. Moses is given the law. Says he's got some tablets for him. He's written the commandments, the law on it. We know those tablets are going to come crashing down um, later. He enters into the glory cloud to be with God. He's there for 40 days and 40 nights. We, we can, we can kind of make the jump. The, the Israelites are in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is going to be in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses is the mediator between God and the people. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people over and over and over. He brought the word to the people, but ultimately he gets angry at the people. And instead of speaking, he hits the rock. And God says, you've sinned, you're not going to enter the promised land. He's a mediator that was faithful, but was also faithless. He disobeyed. He was a sinner. Paul, Paul points us to the great mediator. He says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ, Jesus. His sacrifice has been accepted by the Father. Now he is seated at the right hand of God. Well, he was dead. So how's he seated? Jesus was victorious over the grave and over death. He was raised on the third day. Now he sits interceding on behalf of his people. He is the ultimate mediator. God pursues his people and he provides abundantly for them. They fail over and over, yet he continues to pursue. 
So how will we respond? Yes, we behold God's faithfulness to his promises. Yes, we behold, <clears throat> we behold God's, we behold how God has pursued his people. How will we, how will we respond? I think two ways. Let's fellowship with God and let's obey God. How will we respond? Let's fellowship with God. Let's behold him daily in his word. Let's behold him daily through prayer. He will, provi- he will provide abundantly as we fellowship with him. He's your father who desires a relationship with you. He is present with you through the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> through Jesus, we can have fellowship with God. Our response, obedience. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. As you go into the workplace, serve the Lord. As you're among those who blaspheme God, as those who live worldly lives, serve the Lord. Obey. Do not pursue the idols that surround us. You are a treasured possession set apart for God. And this is what's incredible. Jesus, he makes this connection in John 15. Obedience leads to great joy. Jesus says that that he gives life abundantly. Beholding God in the face of Christ Jesus, we are given life abundantly. Beholding God in the face of Jesus, we're giving great joy. Beholding God in the face of Jesus will radically transform our lives. And as our lives are transformed, we will be a testimony to all who God is and how he has radically changed our lives. As our, as our band comes up to, to sing this final song, our eyes are going to be focused, yes, on God, but on the nations that God is calling to himself. Let us behold God through the Son. Jesus says in the Gospels, if you have seen him, you have seen the Father. Hebrews 1, John 1 Jesus is the very image of God. He's the exact imprint of God. He is full of grace and truth. He has made the Father known. He is the one who calls us to himself and provides abundant life. Oh, that we would set our gaze upon God today, beholding his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. Yes, the Israelites sacrificed blood and goats for the atonement of sin, yet it was a daily ritual. (laughs) Now we trust in the one whose sacrifice was once and for all. In the Son, the Lamb of God, who comes to take away the sins of the world. We pray all this in his mighty name. Amen.